I would say I have an intolerance for bad design. I use our app all the time, and every time I travel, which I travel frequently, I'm constantly taking screenshots and sending them back to my team with thoughts about how the app might be, be simpler. I hope that when my engineers get my screenshots, they don't think like, well, Paul's such an asshole today. I hope they think that, wow, he's really wants to like raise the bar here for simplicity. And it's not that my ideas will always be the best ideas because I know they're not, but I just want to say that this is something we should be talking about every single day, which how can we make it simpler? From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Ben Hillman. And on today's show, how Paul English uses simplicity and straightforward product design to tackle the world of travel. First with B2C giant Kayak.com and now B2B darling Lola. Also, just a quick note. If you share this episode on Twitter with the hashtag protect it, we'll hook you up with some nice ProfitWell swag. So creating a phenomenal experience that's simple and straightforward, it just takes an incredible amount of focus and a disciplined attention to detail. And what's funny is a lot of us think that the hard work we're going to need to spend to produce something great is, is going to be expelled on these mechanical aspects of our job. You know, writing something, building something, selling something, and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in reality, going from good to great, it's... It's less about the mechanical aspects of our job, and it's more about the strategic, disciplined aspects of our job. Yeah, things like product design, infrastructure design, content strategy, operations, all of these pieces that require an incredible amount of creativity, but more just a dedication to having an opinion and not being complacent with, quote-unquote, good enough. That's right. You know, this whole concept of, of good being the enemy of great. Totally, totally. Yeah, you know, we found this in creating content together, mm. <laughs> you and I in the <laughs> trenches, even with this show protect the hustle. We could have easily just sat down, done an interview with a guest, I guess thrown some music on it and call it a day. But, you know, we care more about the story, the learnings, and ultimately how everything kind of all gets in a pot, stirs together and how it fits into that arc. Right. And, and that's just for Protect the Hustle, right? So we're trying to do this for our other shows, you know, Pricing Page Teardown, ProfitWell Report. And this doesn't even include things like ProfitWell Metrics, Price Intelligently, and all of the actual product that we're dedicated to at ProfitWell. <laughs> it seems like we're doing a couple things here at ProfitWell. Just a few. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and what's fascinating to me is like most things we talk about on Protect the Hustle, this concept isn't terribly difficult to understand. Sure. But... Like most things that we talk about on Protect the Hustle, why don't we do it? Well, it's hard. You know, creating something that's great, it's extremely difficult because the gap between good and great, it's so much larger than the gap between average and good. I think that's true, but I think it comes down to a, a deeper, just what I'm going to call laziness. Sure. It reminds me of the Steve Jobs quote around this whole concept of some people aren't used to an environment where excellence is expected. We all have the ability here, the ability to be excellent, but we want to take what we think is the easy route to excellence. And that's really why I'm so excited to chat with Paul English this week, who, at least in my opinion, is the ultimate yardstick of quality when it comes to design and experience. I've never met someone who's just so laser focused. No, absolutely. I mean, agreed. Like, Paul, he's another one of those OGs of the tech world that I believe has come into our vernacular. You know, before he co-founded Lola, he founded Kayak.com. He sold that company to Priceline for... 
cool $2.5 billion back in 2013. I think it was 2.1, but let's not, uh, let's oh, not okay. argue. No, let's mean, not argue over uh, what's, half a billion what's here. What's a couple million, you know? <laughs> That's right. So... <laughs> Most recently, he founded Lola, which is based right here in Boston, and it's a travel platform that's focused on business travelers, and it helps you stop wasting time and really start saving money when it comes to managing corporate travel. And we're going to go deeper into Lola in a bit, but let's first learn a little bit more about Paul's background, because as you'll find, he's incredibly focused on creating the best experience, regardless of his position in that particular experience. And pay careful attention to his whole worldview around competition. And the Frogger reference. Oh, of course, the Frogger reference. You're a tech guy, technically, right? Programmer. Yeah, yeah. your computer science background, yeah. Yeah. UMass, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the kayak was your fourth. This is your fifth-ish yeah. company. Yeah. Where did where the affinity for design, especially because you were one of nine? I think I read one, one of seven one kids. Of seven. Family of nine. Family yeah. of nine. Right. So yeah. when I hear that, I hear like function, function, function. The yeah. Computer science. You know, obviously you had to you know fight for attention and fight yeah. for you know the the resources at home. Like where did kind of this affinity? Was it in college? Was it something in a couple of companies? Like how did that come about? I don't know. I um. I definitely have always had a creative side. I've always been interested in the arts, in, in art and museums and music. I was a pretty serious musician in high school and in college. I have a brother, my oldest brother, Ed English, who's a famous game designer. He was the guy who created Frogger for the Atari oh. platform, okay. oh, wow. 1982 or something like that. And I remember I was in high school when he was writing that code. He's working for Parker Brothers. And he did the sound effects and the graphics and the whole program by himself. And I would frequently look at the app with him and give him feedback during the development of that. And I think that Ed, Ed was a really good engineer and designer. And I think being influenced by his design started me out. But then at each company I worked for, I would gravitate towards who was the best designer of the company. I'd try to find a way that I could work on a project with that person and then learn from them. And I'm a big believer in finding mentors at any level in a company, find someone who's a skill that you don't have that you want and to spend a lot of time with them and then have that constant debate back and forth about why do you do it this way, why not that way? And I think having those discussions is what makes you better. Is it something where that's kind of, like is that what drives you? Is that like, like you don't strike me and I might be completely wrong as like a super competitive person. No, I'm definitely competitive, but I'm competitive with myself I always want to get better at whatever I'm working on, and I practice a lot for different things I work on. I'm just trying to always learn about things. Yeah. So, but it's like, an, is it safe to say it's more of an internal? Like, when you were, you know, what did you play? What was your musical? Uh, I played trumpet and keyboard and bass, and I wrote music as well. Okay, as a musician, like it's a lot of. You know, you don't necessarily look at the next trumpeter always and are like, oh, I got to beat that guy, right? It's well, yeah, for music, like, there's no competition with, yeah, I mean, there maybe there's competition, but I don't, yeah. I didn't think competition. When I was playing like in a big band, a 15-piece jazz band, it's all about anticipating and understanding and responding to other musicians. And I remember I played in this band at UMass Boston. It was an amazing jazz band, and I was playing trumpet in that band. And one day we were getting ready for a big performance, and our pianist was out sick, and she was extraordinary like could tear up a keyboard and we had this one important song we we're performing for this i think it was a competition actually we were entering and the band leader the professor asked me to play piano on this song because i was the only person in the band who played piano other than the real piano player and i remember i played and i was probably like playing with mittens in comparison to the woman who's like a really good 
keyboardist. But like a week later, we had that big performance. The vocalist asked that I play in the song, not the really phenomenal keyboardist. I think the reason the vocalist wanted me to play is, as a musician, I'm not trying to outdo the other musicians. I'm trying to like really listen to them and anticipate them and respond to them. And I think there's something in sports, in basketball, playing in a band, that actually trains you for being an engineer, which is anticipating what other people want on the team and trying to make sure that your work goes along with their work and you're each improving each other. I might be stretching that analogy, but it seems for me like when I played in bands, I played in sports teams or participated in an engineering team, a lot of it to me is how it all works together, how it yeah. comes together. Paul reminds me of a lot of the most successful people that we meet. He's just completely enamored with always wanting to be better. Yeah. I mean, I love the a whole element of being competitive, but more competitive with perfection or greatness or creating the best product like we're trying to do here at ProfitWell, rather than competitive with gaining the best spot in the band. Right. And this, this concept of wanting to be better and just keep refining the product and experience is really emblematic of Paul's whole experience in the world of travel. Listen in on Paul's transition going from Kayak.com to Lola and how he connects the journey between the two. Yeah, and pay careful attention to how Lola isn't necessarily a new product, but it's more of an evolution of focus and simplicity. Yeah, so for Kayak, we did consumer travel. We're the worst on business users. And with Lola, what we're doing is to say, well, what if we actually designed features that were specific for business users and for business owners? What would that look like? And right now, there's not a lot of good software, particularly for small informal businesses. Large companies have software like Concur. If you have like a thousand employees, that does expense management, really careful workflow and approval routing. And what we're trying to do is something for a more modern business that is much more casual and informal. Yeah, and I think that what's kind of interesting in both looking at like Kayak as well as like Lola now, because we, we've used both yeah. um, in, in terms of our personal and our actual business travel. Yeah, yeah. And so kind of curious, like, why why travel? It feels yeah. like this is your thing. So Kayak was my fourth company that I've created, but it's the longest tenure I had. I was there for 10 years. We started in 04, and I left after the Priceline acquisition in 2014, right at the end of 2013. When I told my friends when I left Kayak that I was never going to do travel again, because it's kind of like been there, done that. Frankly, like my last year of Kayak, I was a little bit bored. Mm. Um, I felt like I was editing the same pages for 10 years. I did what a lot of entrepreneurs do coming off a big hit, which I started an incubator, which yeah. really to me meant I didn't know what I wanted to work on. I just wanted to dabble, meet a bunch of entrepreneurs. And we did that for about a year. My incubator was called Blade. And then we created two of our own projects that were 100% by Blade. One of them can best be described as a SurveyMonkey competitor. Originally, actually, it was called Lola. I really have lo always loved the name Lola, so we renamed the survey company to something else and used Lola for the travel company. The original version of Lola was actually a chat app designed to help anyone who wanted a remote executive assistant that had access to your calendar, your contacts, and your email, and your location. It was one of my investors, Joel Cutler, General Catalyst, who basically said, it sounds really interesting, this idea of having a remote assistant, but why not have a remote travel assistant? And I was like, Duh, like, why didn't I think of that? And that just snapped me right back in. And I had been out of travel for 18 months, almost to the day. I have an 18-month non-compete with Priceline. It just felt really comfortable to be back in travel again. 
It's a very fun industry. It's something that a lot of times, a lot of us tech entrepreneurs build something that's a little bit esoteric. It's hard to explain at Thanksgiving to the family. But when you're building travel products, everyone travels. And so sure. there's excitement with anyone you talk to about people want to talk about where do you just come from, where are you going next. So it's a fun space to work in. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. And you get to know a lot about really cool places as well, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. The hardest ones with the ITA data that you can't find correctly and all right. that kind of fun stuff, yep, which is yep. cool. I mean, there's obviously tons of companies that are in this space, tangential to the space, et cetera. Like, what do you look at as like your differentiator? Is it the design? Is it the, the you know, on-call chat, that type of stuff? What makes Lola or what is going to make Lola like the, yeah, so the place? At the highest level, it's simplicity. Ease of use, speed, brand, UI design. We want to do something that's a really modern take on what business travel should look like. Think about Kayak as my warm-up act, right? With Kayak, I wanted to learn how to build software that's really fast and, mm. and simple. But it actually has a lot of complexities in it. And what I'm trying to do with Lola, focus on business travel, is to say, can I build something that's even simpler? So we have like an AI that does a lot of predictive modeling to try to show you basically, if you're looking for a hotel in Boston tonight, we'll certainly show you every hotel in Boston, but we'll really try to guess what's the best hotel for you in Boston based on hotels you stayed at before in Boston and New York and other cities, based on what your teammates have done, what they've sure. stayed at, based on what your company has recommended. And we're trying to sort of cut through the chase and get to your result as quickly as possible. The way we display flights is very different how anyone else displays flights. For a business traveler, you know, none of us like layovers, but if you're a family of four traveling to San Francisco on vacation, you would consider a layover in Chicago if you save $50 a ticket, because it's $200 for a family of four. A business traveler never wants a layover, That's right? Because you just want to leave Boston the latest I can to get to San Francisco the latest I can to make my meetings on time, and I definitely do not want a layover in Chicago. So what we do for flights, this is just an example of simplicity. When you narrow your problem space to one particular user type, in our case, business travelers, is we simply show you not all the flights sort of by price because business users don't pick based on price. They pick based on where's my favorite airline. Like if I, I fly to Boston, I like JetBlue a lot because they're the number one carrier in Boston and I get a lot of miles on them. So what I first want to know is just show me every JetBlue flight leaving Boston going to San Francisco and show me JetBlue, time of day, and then show me the American flights and the United flights and the Delta flights. And instead of having this long list of hundreds of flights sorted by price, which is not the way business users think about it, we just display flights the way business users actually do think about it, which is just show me my favorite airline all the times a day, and then the next airline and the next airline. It sounds like a subtle difference, but yeah. once you start using it, it feels much better than trying to do it old school. No, it's, it's totally true, because when we book, we're Delta folks. Yeah. And so it's like, whenever we were on Kayak, it was like, well, let's just scroll down through the 17 different filters, yeah. find Delta, yeah. only Delta, yeah. and then look at it. And then, yeah. oh, the prices are ridiculous. Let's turn that back on. Right. So, you know, it'd be easy and obviously flattering to say like, oh, you just know this, yeah, right? I think it's around personalization and having the app know you really well. If you're going to LA on business and you go there once a month because you're an important client there, you should be able to start up Lola, see your LA trip and just click clone and just copies that trip. You'd have to type anything. You have to pick out the hotel, you have to pick out the flight, it just copies it. And the more we know you and the more we know your colleagues and the more we know your business travel manager, which could be your head of finance, could be your executive assistant, could be whoever it is in the pro in the, your office who helps administer travel. Once they put a little bit of information into the system, 
we get that much better about personalization and therefore saving you time to buy stuff. And right now, if you look at like on Kayak, a lot of people have told us they'll spend half an hour on Kayak, searching through, looking through options, doing filters, going through more and more. What we want to do is get you in and out in minutes. Here's where things start to get interesting to me. So Paul's focus on always getting better and iterating on what experience to get to simplicity and Lola just knowing you and what you want is exactly how we think here at ProfitWell. Right. And, and I think I think it's just really good design, right? Like really good design thinking, really good product design. And when you're approaching a problem out there in the ether, you just have infinite numbers of, of solutions that you can basically apply to the problem for your customer. But really the best solution for your customer is to solve it in as simple and straightforward way as possible. So if you have a bunch of WYSIWYG editors and, and toggles and switches and levers and filters, buttons, knobs, like all these little things, you're just making the distance between your customer's problem and, and their solution that much wider. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what's scary is that simplicity is incredibly difficult. I mean, think about how many decisions Paul and the team had to make in order to get to a place where Lola could even remotely feel straightforward and simple. You know, there's likely a ton of, well, we could solve that problem by just adding this travel filter. But, you know, I think that adds complexity. Right. And, and I think that this really comes down to it's your job as a product leader to make choices and decisions. You need to do it for them, for your customer. Through your research and understanding the problem, you should have a better understanding of how to solve the problem for your customer and know what your customer really wants. Okay. I know that's right, but it sounds arrogant. Well, sure, but but think of it this way. You're in the business of solving the problem for your customer. So you should understand the problem better than anyone else. You should be using the wisdom of all of the different users and all of the different customers in the context of this problem. It's not really arrogance. It's just more that you're the steward of the solution, and that's really the value that your customer's really buying. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but the big question, of course, is how do you do that? It sounds like there's an element of understanding your customer and also getting feedback, which we talked about in length in previous episodes. But let's go back to Paul to get deeper into the details and pay careful attention to how this is much more of a cultural phenomenon with a commitment to excellence more than a tactical do this, follow these steps. What's the process in terms of like how you discover, how your team discovers okay, so they care about priority of airline, then price, then et cetera, or whatever it ends up being. Like, do you have a process or is it yeah, more just... Yeah, it's a couple things. So I'm definitely, there's a terminology in UI design called lead user, which is you find a user who has an extreme version of the problem because it, in this case, like they're traveling a lot and look at the problems they're encountering. So I recently looked at the last nine years of travel since I've had records and I've been on the road three years. I travel a lot and I know what works well for me and what doesn't work for me. And then also we do regular focus groups and interviews with our users and we'll meet them at their office. Sometimes we bring users in to here to visit us at Lola, but a lot of times we'll actually go to their office. We'll ask them like, what apps do you have on your phone right now? What travel apps do you like? What don't you like? Do you have the Delta app? If so, why? If not, why not? We're trying to understand everything about how you think about travel. And then we're trying to come up with simple ways to do it so that you don't need to have 20 apps. When you think about like how you're telling your design or your UX or even your product teams like to go forward, like do you have specific, here's our constraints. This user, we want to make sure that this is the number one priority, simplicity. Is it something like that or is it more just like iterate, iterate? Or... I mean, ultimately what we care about is conversion, right? We want to make sure that for every hundred downloads, we get a certain number of searches and purchases. And if you screw up in the UI and have too much UI, 
people get distracted. And while they're going through your 10th screen trying to figure out how to buy a flight, their phone rings or someone walks into their office, you just lost that customer. And so what we're trying to do, and part of this is the AI, is get you the answer you want immediately without making go through filters. Ultimately, it's conversion, but the way to think about conversion is, are you giving the user what they're looking for without any of the clutter? I mean, the more someone travels, the more they will appreciate Lola because the way personalization works is we have to have some information about you. And the more you use it, the better the product gets because we can do a much better job predicting your hotels if we see what hotels you've liked before. The more you use the app, the better it'll get for you and the faster it'll get. The whole simplicity is super, super important. Like, how do you evangelize that to your team? Like, is it is it just hiring the right people who are on the same wavelength? Or? It's part of it is hiring the right people who care about the stuff about simplicity. We have an extraordinary designer, Lincoln Jackson. He and I sat next to each other for 10 years at Kayak and designed oh. Kayak together, and we sit next to each other here. We have an extraordinary director of engineering for client, Elliot Nash, who's a really great guy to focus on simplicity. We have a number of people on the team who really get it. And I think part of it is me trying to recruit people who get simplicity and then having them help raise the bar at the company so we know it's something we talk about all the time. And when we see a UI at the company, because there's a handful of people that end up doing design, and we let the engineers do design as well. If they want to try out something, they can try out something without going through an official designer sometimes. If we see something that's looks like shit, we'll say that looks like shit. How could you do this and not have these things aligned? Or how come using a seventh color on a screen rather than picking one of the you know top three colors on the screen? Or why are there six different font sizes on the screen? Why do you have to click through these extra dialogues to get to what it's obvious what the user's gonna want? It's just something we talk about all the time. I mean, I have worked with designers who are kind of brittle and arrogant and they do their design and they you know put it out there like on a frame, on a shelf, and they say, this is my work. And they don't want input because they view other people, our engineers, as kind of beneath them or not as gifted as they are visually or whatever. I have tend to avoid those people or find ways for me to not, to have to work with them. I really like designers who are curious, number one, who are always trying to learn, who are humble, and who want to engage. and. A lot of times, if you have a really good designer who kind of has the mojo, like they have a good aesthetic, they have confidence in their design, but they also want questions and they realize that when someone asks them a question, it's because that person didn't get it. And while as a designer, you could take the time to explain to you why I did it, the reality is you're not going to have that opportunity to explain to all your users. They're either going to get it or they're not going to get it. So when I've worked on design projects with the team here, if someone doesn't get a design, I want to totally understand why they don't get it. And I want to have that discussion. I think the best designers here want to have that discussion as well. So it's kind of like subversion of the ego, like number one. Yeah. And then curiosity, it sounds like. Yeah. Like you want, I have a term I use called arrogant humility, which is if you're really good at something, you know you're good at it because you've gotten feedback about it over the years. So you have a little bit of arrogance of like, I'm good at programming or whatever your skill is. But the humility part is if you're curious, you can always find people who have skills you don't have and why not try to learn from them? You might not be at the stage now, but I know at Kayak definitely, as you grow, how do you maintain that quality? Like, is there checks? Is it just the constraints? Is it mentorship? Yeah. Like, what's what's the thing? Like, what's what's the secret, Paul? Like, in, in terms yeah. of that, yeah. I would say I have an intolerance for bad design. 
I get like really upset when I use my app all the time. And every time I travel, which I travel frequently, I'm constantly taking screenshots and sending them back to my team with thoughts about how the app might be, be simpler. I hope that when my engineers get my screenshots, they don't think like, well, Paul's such an ass today. I hope they think that, wow, he's really wants to like raise the bar here for simplicity. And it's not that my ideas will always be the best ideas because I know they're not. Sure. We have some other incredibly creative people here. But I just want to say that this is something we should be talking about every single day, which how can we make it simpler? How can we eliminate steps? How can we make smart assumptions that don't require us to ask the user 10 questions? There's so much more there that, you know, I feel like we can all agree with, you and I can agree with, but a lot of us, we, we don't follow through on that. We should be making choices to simplify. We should be questioning why, why are we adding this complexity? And we certainly should be having an opinion on the best way to solve a customer's problem. Absolutely. And, and I think the reason we don't follow through here is because we both inherently want to help people and probably just think we know better. That sounds like a good thing and a bad thing. Well, yeah, both both of those things are on other <laughs> sides of the spectrum. But I, I think that we inherently don't want to say no. We, we get a support ticket asking for something or we chase a different part of the market or we think we can bridge the gap between something we don't have quickly by just adding some features haphazardly to the product. And then on the other hand, we, we probably don't do enough research to understand if that's how a user will react to what we're building. And, and there's just this constant battle between focus and breadth. And I think that's where Paul's whole lead user concept works out really well. Yeah, it can help avoid feature creep while also making sure you're staying focused on the right goal. Exactly. And, and this is why we talk about personas and profiles so much at ProfitWell, because even if you don't have them perfectly right or you haven't quite quantified them, you at least have them to argue about when it comes to considering different paths or different features for those different personas. All right. One thing I was curious about, maybe you can shine a little bit of a light on this, is um, do you think that there is a point where complexity is actually a good thing? Ah, uh, that's actually a... A rare phenomenal question from you here. Okay, don't don't pat yourself on the back too be much. Be a banana. Uh, banana? I don't <laughs> bruise banana. Oh. <laughs> okay. I I think the answer to that when when you take it to the nth degree is actually no. But there's there's a few caveats here. So we actually run into this problem with ProfitWell, where we want things to be just dead simple. So if you look at ProfitWell Retain, for example, you turn it on and your churn goes down. It's got a 15-minute setup and, and that's it. And with ProfitWell Metrics, you'll eventually only have to log in when you're alerted to a problem. It's, it's just going to be Hold that good. Where's and, the problem? Well, the problem is that prospects and customers, they, they sometimes get into this mode where they think it's so simple that it's too good to be true. Now in the world of kind of B2B software, we're just not used to things that just work. We're used to software that just makes us work to get the value. You know, you think of Salesforce, you have to put so much work into the product just to show your boss that you're doing the work. And when you think about kind of web 2.0, 3.0 or SaaS 2.0, however you want to define it, when you think about modern CRMs, their focus is just on helping you do the work automatically. And so I think with travel, this, this whole concept of doing the work for you, making it simple, making it straightforward, it's really a breath of fresh air because Paul and Lola are focusing so much on the right customer. 
But with ProfitWell, we've started to show just how much work went into making things so simple to make sure that we're proving out the value. And retained pricing also helps a bit here because you're only paying for performance. So it's it's kind of a world where you don't necessarily need complexity, but you do need to show your work, if you will. No, definitely. I mean, it, it definitely makes sense. So it's more of an experience problem or a solution than anything. Sure. It's kind of like, I, I don't know when you took algebra, but I took algebra long time in, ago. in you know, sixth grade. <laughs> and what was kind of funny about it is I was always really aggravated about showing my work, right? Uh, I just wanted to get to the answer. I just wanted to make sure that there was some simplicity there, but you had to show some of the complexity to not only get full credit, but also to to kind of prove out the formula of what you were seeing. And I think this complexity is is sometimes a good thing as long as it's defending the value. But it, it can't be so complex that it affects the experience. In fact, the experience should just be value adding. And when we show the work that went into our products and, and gain that trust, we end up making the experience that's just that more valuable and, and just more trust-inducing. Yeah, and this is what Paul and Lola are doing with their travel agents, which you can access through the app. And I really love this whole element of Lola because it's such a high-value add to make Lola not only a slick piece of software, but really a solution for travel. Right, and this actually started with... Paul's foray into being an Uber driver, making sure that the agents, him in this case of Uber, and, and now this agent in terms of the travel agents through Lola, just are really focused on that experience. Yeah, and listen closely to Paul walking through his experience as an Uber driver and how that shaped the support and the success structure of Lola's agents to make sure that they create the best business travel product on the market. I know in your 18 months or so, you were doing Uber as yeah. in your Tesla, which I know other people have written about, but was yeah. that influenced by the whole like press a button and get a car kind of concept? It's interesting. I mean, Uber is such an amazing company. I wish I had invented it. Well, it's so simple, I, right? It's like, so yeah, great. Yeah. But the reason I drove for Uber last year was in Lola, we think it's really important that when you have an interaction with a customer service agent, that you rate them on a scale of one to five. And then if you rate someone really well, we want to make sure you keep getting that person again and again and again. If there's someone you didn't work well with, we want to make sure you don't get them again. And we want to use these ratings to train our agents. Before we put ratings into our app, I want to know what it felt like to get rated. So the easiest way for me to get rated was become an Uber driver. And then I became obsessed with, am I providing good service? And what do I need to do to get that five-star rating? And I would never ask my customers, like, give me a five-star rating. But I'd be obsessed with checking my rating at the end of every day. But I had a, I had a pretty good rating. I mean, I only did it for a few months. My rating was 4.97. And then it dated dropped to 4.92 or 4.93. I remember thinking like, who's the person to give me five stars? And I have theories. I had a couple of like really challenging customers, but yeah, it, it was depressing to not be a five star, to go down to 4.92 or whatever I was. And how did that affect, like when you're implementing the ratings with your agents now, like did that, how did that affect? I think, you know, I can tell the agents we have here that I've been rated too, and I also will do service on Lola. If you use Lola, you might get me as an agent and I'll get rated inside of Lola. By my experience, I can tell the agents like, I've been rated, it keeps me on my game and I wanna get better every month and it's a metric you should use as well. The biggest thing I look for with agents isn't so much fixing UI design problems in the product, although there has been that. We have some really amazing agents on the team and they definitely give us feedback on the, about the product. It's more when the customer is traveling and something bad happens. A lot of times they just want to talk to a human. Having that chat at 24 by 7 to someone kind of inside of Lola that will answer any question 
and they've seen your full history. They have your profile. They see what you've been clicking on. They're like right there with you traveling and you ask them a question and they can tell you anything about your flight or your hotel or calling the hotel on your behalf to get your early check-in, changing flights. If you're going to miss one flight, they can change another flight. The agents are very proactive in trying to care for you when you're traveling. And I know we've gotten really good feedback on that. I've used the agent a couple of times, Lola, and I've also Hotel Tonight, they have their own like pros agent kind yeah. of a thing. And what's always kind of fascinating is the difference. And I, I don't know if this is Stacy's influence. Stacy used to be my boss over at Jambara. So like, I know that, you know, she runs a tight ship on that front. Yeah, so amazing. What was kind of fascinating is like Hotels Tonight is like a standard support, yeah. like just real standard, like, can you help me with this? No, yeah. sorry, I can't. Right. Like the equivalent of maybe they called the hotel, but like yeah. I could have done that, that kind of thing. Yeah. For you guys, it wasn't something where I was in the position with Lola, but it was like, I feel like if I asked like, hey, can you order me this pizza to be delivered to my hotel? Like they would have done it. I didn't test that, but um, I feel like that was, pretty, that was kind of the vibe I was getting. Yeah, I think we do more and more care for our most frequent travelers. And the people who use Lola a lot have come to know who the agents are and they end up developing a relationship with the agents, which I think can, can help. It probably depends in part by how well the app knows you and how well the agents know you as far as how that relationship's gonna work. This is another founder that I, I just want to go hang out with and learn from. This whole element of just constantly getting better and making sure the experience is clean, simple, and delightful when these uncontrollable bugs, aka when, when something goes wrong with their trip and Lola can't even really have any control of it, but still injects them in to solve the problem, it's... It's just really inspiring. Right. And I mean, you and I have had our fair share of things that have gone wrong with travel. But, <laughs> you know, to me, I just keep going back to the element of, of good being the enemy of great. That thing that we talked about earlier on, especially when it comes to product. Paul's a guy that just doesn't accept good enough. And I think we can learn a lot from him on that front. Absolutely. And I loved how it comes from this combination of focusing on the right customer, something that we talk about a lot here at ProfitWell, but then making sure all the little things fall into place in the context of that customer, which is this battle of not only features and picking the right features and not building certain features and everything kind of in between, but it's also a battle all the way down to you know fighting about the pixels and, and of course, a, a somewhat productive and, and positive manner, of course. Well, and it's a constant battle, or, or maybe not a battle, but a, a constant journey to hone your craft continually in a way that produces that greatness for your customer. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And I think it's, you have to never settle. You always have to look to simplify and you can never forget it's about the customer and it's about providing that value to the customer. Protect the Hustle is produced by Dan Callahan and Ben Hillman with help from Robert Byrne and Alyssa Chan. Written and produced by Patrick Campbell. If you share this episode on Twitter with the hashtag ProtectIt, we'll hook you up with some nice ProfitWell swag. This week's episode is brought to you by Rainforest QA. Discover problems that affect the customer experience before code hits production, and do it at the speed of continuous delivery. RainforestQA.com <laughs>